Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, the family of Manuel Tehran, who was killed by a Georgia State Trooper during what authorities say was a shootout, says investigators are not providing any information. Now, alongside their attorney, Tehran's family held a press conference earlier today. We will have more with Shemaine Cruz in just a moment. Also this hour, One Goal, a program that prepares students for college and the working world. Well, this organization has a focus on those high school youth needing resources way before day one of college. And a conference gets underway, presented by Georgia State. It's the Beyond the Culture II, Black Popular Culture and Social Justice. And of course, it will commemorate 50 years of hip-hop. I'll speak with the professor behind the conference. Now, all those important community conversations coming up, but as mentioned, the family of 26-year-old Manuel Tehran held a press conference today. They contend the GBI is not revealing any information. I want to bring in WABE Shemaine Cruz, who's at the press conference. Welcome. Hey, Rose. Thanks for having me. Sure. I want to begin here and let our listeners hear a little bit of this is Manuel Terrell's mother, Tehran's mother. All Manuel wanted to do was to protect the forest, the forest, preserve the good of a land for all people, create awareness and help organize, organize different communities. They had no malice and no intention of committing illegal acts. They were a pacifist and had no intention of resorting to a violence as a way of defending himself. And so, Shemaine, we heard, just heard there from Mayon Tehran's mother. There were others there. Take us, our listeners, through what was presented today. What did the family want to get across today? Yes, Manuel's um, dad, mom, and brother were there, and they just spoke about Manuel's, the legacy that he's leaving behind, and just the fact that Manuel was there to protect the forest. Um, and basically what they're requesting is a sit-down interview with the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, to learn more about what led to their death on January 18th. And there were two attorneys there, uh, also representative family. I understand that family attorney, Brian Spears, he was there. You mentioned that they have a lot of questions that they say still need to be answered. I want to play a clip from this attorney, Brian Spears. Manuel Perez Terran's body was released to his family last Tuesday by the DeKalb County Medical Examiner's Office. A private autopsy was conducted on Tuesday afternoon. As a result of the private autopsy, we learned the shocking news that it appears that Manuel was shot over 12 times and was shot by several different firearms. Multiple officers riddled his body with bullets. 
And, Shemaine, hearing that description from the attorney, Brian Spears, what else did you gather from this press conference with the attorneys here? Attorneys are really asking for any information that may be available. Um, That includes drone uh, video from drones, um, possibly helicopters. They said that they don't know for sure if this is available right now, but um, the GBI has been adamant about the fact that there's no body cam footage. So they're just really looking for any evidence um, of what happened to show what happened um, that day. And Closer Look reached out to the GBI this morning. They released a statement around 12.30 p.m. today, which includes, quote, when we began our case, we contacted and spoke with Tehran's family. We intend to follow up with the family as the investigation progresses. But, Tremaine, according to the attorneys, they have not been given any information. But did they were they clear that they had not been contacted or they just hadn't received much information? They said that they haven't had any response from the GBI. Um, According to the attorneys, they said they hand-delivered a letter to the GBI before they conducted the private autopsy last Tuesday, um, asking for a meeting with the family. And um, like I said, so far, they haven't received any sort of response. And the other attorney there, uh, Shemaine Jeff Flipowitz, says that their terrorism charges are meant to send a message to protesters. Before we play that clip, what is this all about? Are there folks who might have been witnesses, but they're not, they have not come forward? Yeah, that's right. Um, the attorney, Jeff Filipovic, says that, uh, well, these people were detained, so it's um, they're just not coming forward. And then other people who may have been there um, are afraid to come forward as well. Let's take a listen to that. Whatever happened in the forest, this family deserves to know. The public deserves to know. Right now, demonstrators are scared to come forward. People who are in that forest on that day are scared to speak to us. And for good reason, they have been threatened. These terrorism charges are meant to send a message, and the message is clear. If you stand in our way, we will take you out of our way. We will not tolerate this dissent. Jermaine, what else did the attorneys, did they have some evidence that they point to that this is what people have told them, this is the reason why they have not come forward, or is this speculation by the attorneys? Uh, Right now, I believe that is just uh, speculation. And there were other community organizers at the conference as well, correct? Yes, that's right. And what did they have to say, Shermaine? Uh Jerry Weber with the Southern Center for Human Rights says that Cop City is the third largest police training center in the nation. Um, uh, another person who was there with um, Community Builders, I believe is the name of the organization, they said that um, about 43% of law enforcement that's going to be using the facility once it's built um, will be from out of state. Um, and they just find it ironic that these officers aren't being called um, like outside agitators in the same way that uh, protesters are being portrayed as. And Shemaine, before we let you go, what do we know? Are we finding more about exactly who Manuel Tehran was? We know he was, his mom spoke today. Uh, Belkis, she said that Manuel was, was Venezuelan. That's right. And she also mentioned that 
Manuel graduated magna cum laude from Florida State University with a bachelor's in psychology and associates in, in sociology. She said Manuel was always reading, always had a book in their hand, um, spent a lot of time just cleaning beaches, uh, started an environmental club that continues to be active. And um, one quote from her that really stuck with me, uh, she said, I never thought taking care of a park would be so dangerous. And she just described Manuel as a pacifist. Hmm. WABE's Shemaine Cruz, who's been covering this, thank you so much for taking the time. We'll have more on this during All Things Considered, hosted by Jim Burrs. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. And we believe we have that report to you. So some other news to get to. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is throwing his support behind a new school safety bill after vetoing a similar bill back in 2019 because, as he put it, it took control away from local school districts. Now we have that report from Martha Dalton. The Safe Schools Act would require all Georgia schools to submit safety plans to the state. Those plans would include procedures for handling natural disasters and acts of violence and terrorism. The legislation would mandate training for all school staff on violence prevention and mental health awareness. The bill would also require the state to develop an optional anti-gang certification for teachers. During his first year in office, Kemp supported a similar bill, which would have allowed using school records to create student profiles officials could scan for threats. When he vetoed the bill, Kemp said it undermined local control and could have opened school administrators to legal liability. Martha Dalton, WABE News. And in other news, anti-Semitic flyers were reportedly found in several Atlanta-area neighborhoods this past weekend, including that of a state lawmaker. Now, the flyer is said to be found Sunday morning in several driveways in, and in Sandy Springs. One was left at the home of State House Representative Esther Panich. The Democratic lawmaker had the sealed flyer taken away and tested for anything suspicious. On Twitter, she said the flyers also targeted Jewish families in Fulton and DeKalb counties. The representative also posted a warning to those who, quote, seek to harm or intimidate Jews in Georgia, close quote, ending one of her tweets with, quote, I'm coming for you with the weight of the state behind me, close quote. Sandy Springs and Dunwoody police say they are investigating. Governor Kemp and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger also responded on Twitter, saying they stand with the Jewish community, they condemn any acts of anti-Semitism, and they're ready to assist local law enforcement with state investigators. Army housing at Fort Gordon, just outside Augusta, will be the first in a series related to standard of living inspections. As we hear from Emily Wu Pearson, it comes after a Senate investigation found widespread mistreatment of military families by a private military housing company. Most military family housing is run by private companies, like Balfour Beattie Communities LLC for Fort Gordon. Some homes were found to have unaddressed toxic mold growth, broken appliances that leaked gas, and water leaks that caused roofs to collapse. Georgia U.S. Senator John Ossoff called for the probe. And while Army officials say their investigations did not show gross negligence from Balfour, they did commit to unit-by-unit inspections starting with Fort Gordon this year. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. Atlanta's historic Oakland Cemetery is in recovery mode after the deep freeze in December. 
As Molly Samuel reports, the cemetery, which is also the city's oldest park, lost thousands of plants to the cold, and its greenhouses were damaged. Former Atlanta Mayor Maynard Jackson, author Margaret Mitchell, and musician Kenny Rogers are just some of the famous people buried in Oakland Cemetery. It has African-American burial grounds, Jewish burial grounds, and a section for Confederate soldiers. It's long been a popular place for people to visit, and it's known for its gardens. But the blast of cold weather around Christmas did a lot of damage. We're waiting for the signs of spring and, and our plants to just hopefully show us some sign that they're still there, but uh, some have unfortunately been lost. Abra Lee is the director of horticulture at Oakland Cemetery. She says some plants that look bad now might come back, but some are definitely dead, including 90 percent of the rosemary that's planted throughout the cemetery. Seeing the rosemaries look like, they, I mean, they're just to a crisp, and that was alarming to me because that really isn't something that I've ever seen and I have been working in Southern horticulture for 23 years. The heater failed and a pipe burst in the greenhouse, too, and they lost about half the plants in there. Lee says cemetery staff are taking stock of the damage, which they estimate to be about $75,000 worth, and they're fundraising to help restore what they lost. But she says this cemetery survived the Civil War. It can recover from this. Molly Samuel, WABE News. And finally... Wait your turn is pretty much the message eager Beyonce fans are getting today. It's the first day to try and snag tickets via presale. And apparently it's for verified fans who receive some sort of access code determined by a lottery. I have no idea what this means. But basically fans are on a wait list. And from the world of Twitter, quote, quote I know what wait list means at Ticketmaster. I'm not getting these Beyonce tickets, close quote, which is followed by the agony of defeat emoji. Anyway, fresh off four Grammy wins last night, including Best Dance Electronic Album for Renaissance, as well as the Best R&B Song. Now, Beyonce will grace the great state of Georgia August 11th and 12th at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I'll see you there doing interviews with folks who are looking to buy tickets, because I won't have any. We're back in a moment. Closer Look continues now. We're going to talk about the One Go program. I'm joined now by Lashanti Holland, a sophomore at Clayton State University, and Taylor Ramsey, who's the executive director of One Goal. And before we went to that little break to work out all our kinks, Lashanti, you were telling me about when you were a sophomore in high school. Did you think, did you have any plans what you wanted to do? No, I wasn't really sure, but I was in this program called HOSA. It's like a healthcare organization, and that kind of helped shift me to my major to where I am right now. Did you so you so you knew you wanted to go to college obviously. Did yes. you have any concerns about being college ready? 
all those other things that come with, you know, leaving home and, and being mm-hmm. on campus? Yes. Well, I actually wasn't really thinking much about that until like my junior year when I got introduced into One Goal. Mm-hmm. And if you could describe your attitude, your feeling, your confidence for heading to college before One Goal and after, how would you describe that transformation? Well, the first transformation would be very nervous, very um, not knowing of what I was getting myself into, mm-hmm. I would like to say. But after one goal and my senior teacher, Miss Powell, helped me, it kind of helped lift it, this weight that I was that was holding on to me, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Uh, Taylor, how often do you hear students talk about, you know, the little anxiety and everything else in, involved with just thinking about going to college and then, you know, they enter your program. You hear this a lot. Oh, yeah. And Lashanti and I were sitting in the car uh, just a moment ago kind of talking about that experience. Students experience tremendous anxiety and uncertainty. And especially over the last couple of years, we were just reminiscing that Lashanti's senior year was entirely virtual. She's a class of 2021 Mays High School graduate. So then was, you know, confronting that and then thinking about going straight to a four-year university. And we at One Goal try and just help students think about what do you want long term and tap into their innate strengths and greatness. Is that where One Goal begins with the students asking them okay tell us a little bit about you what are your interests and then you take it in different phases how does this work that's exactly how it starts rose so we're a three-year program and students join one goal in their junior year and we operate as a credit-bearing class our kind of the whole big idea of one goal is that we have to make intensive post-secondary advising an integrated part of the school day we got to treat it almost like any other core subject how and early do you start with them we start in junior year and wow. so we take students who want to go to a post-secondary opportunity or may be uncertain they're on the fence and we know we're going to need more support and in that junior year it is a lot about who are you what do you care about what are your values what are your interests and if that is your long-term interest what steps are you going to have to take to get there is it a two-year degree a four-year degree a technical credential then senior year we get brass tacks we've got to figure out where you're going to apply you got to get that financial aid right scholarships you got to take the steps to enroll and then i would say the special sauce is we provide an entire third year of support. So we need to help students get from high school, frankly, all the way to their first day of the sophomore year of their post-sec experience, because that's where we lose kids. They either continue and, you know, will actually complete that degree or they may fall off their path. Let's go back because you all are recognizing that it's more than just getting them ready for day one on on campus. You've got to get them first, understand their mindset, and then work with them. Uh, Lashanti, when you think back to the the first time when you got introduced into the program, did you think, okay, this is going to help me tremendously? Honestly, I didn't know how far it would help me, to be honest, until after, until we started getting to the FAFSA and, like, picking out, like, five, our top five schools. But, yes, I wasn't really sure how it would take upon me. Did you, um, now... We, I love Georgia State. I gave their commencement address last last year. I love them. Was Georgia Tech, George, uh, Clayton State? Your, I'm sorry, Clayton State, your first school? Um, it was my second top. Mm-hmm. My second top school. My first top was Kennesaw State University, and I did transfer from Kennesaw. Okay, so I'm at my second school. And you like it? Yes, I love it. Good folks at Clayton State, I should say that. Fair. They'll send me an email. <laughs> For those students who may be the first in their families who are attending college. Um, and and perhaps they 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 don't have access or resources or folks to turn to to walk them through all of this. You all seeing that you're starting with some, 
they just have no clue you really have to begin from the ground level ground zero I guess if you want to call it that and getting them ready yeah and I'll just say I'm a first generation college student yeah. that is why I'm in this work and why I'm in this role and so Me passionate yeah. all right hey yeah. Rose okay yeah. I've got a proposition for you later then <laughs> there you go um, <laughs> I wrote myself into something <laughs> yeah um, but yes I mean the statistics will show right if you are a student from a low-income background or first generation college student if you're out there listening and you fall in that category and you got a two-year or four-year degree frankly you're in a very small minority of people in this mm-hmm. country and that is because of systemic barriers and equities that exist. And that is what one goal is here to disrupt. And yes, it just, you know, all the research would show if you're the first in your family to navigate this path, there's going to be a lot you don't know and understand. You can get there, but you're going to need some additional support. Are you all, how many district school districts are you in? Is it just APS or just how do folks get involved? So currently we're in seven APS schools and one South Fulton High School. And we really do partner with schools and districts who you know, have said, I want to bring more supports to my kids, Mm -hmm. especially the ones who are the most vulnerable, to make sure they have what they need to access the educational opportunity. So we're looking for partners. We have some new partners that will start with us next year. I want to back up a little bit. How long have you all been around? Yes. Um, So One Goal is a national organization. We've been around for 15 years, and we are in our sixth year of operation here in the metro Atlanta area. And how did you get involved with it? Yeah, well, like I name, so I'm a first generation college student. And could I just tell a little bit? I mean, I'll I'll share a quick story. I mean, I think that really exemplifies what one goal is. But, you know, when I think back to my own journey to college 25 years ago, you know, I had a couple things going for me, which was a mom who made a lot of phone calls and was super persistent, and a high school counselor who really saw some promise in me, but knew that as a first gen college student, a student from a low income background, a student from a single parent, I was going to need additional support. And Mr. Getz, thank you, wherever you are really sat down and walked me through that whole process every step of the way. And high school counselors are... And we didn't have the internet. No internet. This is all paper. This is going to the library. Shanti, we didn't have all this. We didn't. We got things in the mail. It's called the mail, right? Right. And I mean, my mom and I talk about this. I mean, it was a totally different world. So here, you know, he really went above and beyond and it made a tremendous difference. And there's high school counselors doing this all across the country. But frankly, that kind of support they can only give to a tiny fraction of students. Especially if you have a high school that has hundreds, hundreds, and even a thousand or two thousand students are you able to does it but but because of that population growth or the increase there in the student enrollments at some of these districts i imagine you have some challenges trying to get enough people in your program is that why you can only maybe support so many high schools right now well i would say it's a there's tremendous need and desire it is a lack of resources right so schools want to provide this kind of intensive support to kids most high school seniors are going to get about 38 minutes of, of personalized advising because of the student to counselor ratio, right? Just 38 minutes. 38 minutes. And if you've helped a young person get from high school to any post-sec op, you know it's going to take a whole lot more than 38 minutes. That is in part why we see the massive disparities between who gets to go to a post-second opportunity and not. So schools want to partner. It is about freeing up resources. Yep. Lashanti, that first year at school and one goal was still working with you, checking in on you. How important was that for you? Very important, especially for a first-time student in college. It's a lot to adjust to. So with one goal being there, checking in on me, making sure that my grades are good, making sure that I'm going to class on time, just make sure that everything is, you know, on set for me. (laughs) How was your time management? I struggle. I'll be, look, I should be honest and fair. I struggle with time management my first year 
I was all over the map. <laughs> but I got better, you know. Mm-hmm. I, being in track and field helped because your coach is like, you better get the track practice on time. But that was something I struggled with. Did you have any struggles that you want to share that you know now in your second year you have mastered? Uh, yes, especially time management and studying. Um, I would say, y'all, please make sure that y'all go to your advisors. Keep in contact with anybody to make sure that y'all can study and just be, you know. That's okay, no. Study. Yeah. So now you're better, right? Yes, I am better. They helped me with a lot. <laughs> not, met, go ahead. I was going to say not just with academics, but financial needs as well. I feel like every school needs a one-go organization. Wow, there's your ambassador. Ashanti right put there. in well, and she put in the work, really hard yeah. work. Yeah. For those students who are still stru- may have some struggles in the first year, what are you all able to provide for them? Yeah, so it's a lot of what Lashanti described, and the term sounds weird, but it's called intrusive advising. That's the actual term for it because oh. it is that, which is how do we proactively reach out to the students in our program and keep them engaged, right? We're going to call them. We're going to make sure they don't miss deadlines. You know, we're going to build their agency. Kids have to be a willing participant in this. Mm -hmm. But as opposed to letting students struggle, we're going to reach out ideally and help them, you know, stay on track. You all have to deal in in data, obviously. Are you able to look at the students who, like LaShanti, who are doing great, and then maybe those students who, you know, had some challenges, and then how do you assess then what you need to do? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, the pandemic also has only layered challenges on challenges. So we recently did a kind of root cause analysis when kids are dropping out, what's happening there. And it won't surprise the audience. It's financial. It's um, balancing family and school. It's socio-emotional. Uh, and sometimes it's academic. And so we can, there are some predictors. You mentioned Georgia State, right? Kind of following in suit there. There are predictors and we can know, okay, if a student's struggling in this way, they're going to need a more intensive intervention. And we have coaches on our staff who will go in person um, regularly and meet with students, make sure they stay on track. I have a question from a listener who says, do y'all also work with students who who may be undocumented? We do, actually. We do. And we're actually sitting in a training. My team is sitting in a training today uh, with Freedom University to think about what are the different supports in place for all the different documentation sort of statuses that we might see parents and documented students, et cetera. Without a program like One Goal, do you think it's, can people fully understand that for some students that they can even have the best grades, but just making, getting ready to make that transition, this is a new chapter in your life. And understand that for some students, if they don't make it the first year, it may not totally be related to grades. The grades could be a a consequence of something else. That's right. Programs like this are, are needed for so many students. Yeah. I mean, truly, we were just talking about this, that the first year of college for so many is a major point of transition. And that's why our program focuses from that junior year of high school to, quote unquote, the first day of sophomore year of a post-sec path. Because what we found is if we can get students to bridge from high school through that first year, their chances of ultimately graduating, which (laughs) is the goal after all, are much higher. But yes, right, you're away from home for the first time. And again, the student population we're um, specifically focused on is in many cases going to face many more financial Mm -hmm. or potentially social barriers than otherwise. I have another question from a listener who says, do you all help students in writing their statements for applications? We do. Yes. Personal statements is a whole part of our curriculum. You you remember your personal statement? 
not sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a blur, right? But yes, it's it's been two years. Yeah. It's been two years. But one goal, they help with a lot of connections. I have met so many good people at Clayton State within my first year of being yeah. here. So many good connections. They are. The, the personal statement. Do you remember your personal statement? Uh, I do, actually. Yeah. I do a little bit. Only because, too, I've thought so much about my own college-going experience. But I talked a lot about the adversity that I'd faced in my personal life mm-hmm. and how that made me a good candidate for college. Um, yeah. When you uh, when you all advise the kids with personal statements, are you telling are you how much are you telling them to reveal? Just be themselves. I mean, you know, this is new for them. Yeah, I mean, I think authenticity and being honest and within you don't have to share anything you don't want to share, right? Um, and so, yes, we help students with every part of the college application process. That being said, is there a process that you all aren't able to help right now, or that you feel like you could do more in that area? And if so, what is it? I mean, I would still say that helping, you know, the the path to college, and when I say college, I'm talking any post-sec path, two-year, four-year technical, Mm -hmm. has become increasingly complex. And so there's a step of helping students think about the the institutions that are going to be the best match and fit for them. I would say still the affordability piece is often the most complex. How are you going to piece together Mm -hmm. grants, loans, scholarships? And, you know, so that we see students who may not have to transfer in that first year. So I think we're doing well and and there's always more to do. And there's some things, there's some interventions we need on a state and local level, frankly. Like what? Like needs-based aid. (laughs) I know you've talked about this several times on your show. You know, I think the Georgia's legislature made some important steps last year with completion grants and um, child care subsidies for parents Mm -hmm. who are in college. But we need more needs-based aid for students in this state if we're going to see more students from low-income backgrounds actually be able to access post-secondary opportunities. And it matters for our economics, and I think there's a moral argument there as well. Are you all able to provide some financial support in areas might maybe just for books you know just those little things that you know I mean room and board of course is important and then the actual tuition for the but go ahead yeah I would like to say yes they do provide um they help with tuition costs with books food anything that you need um I'm trying to see I know every first semester they send out at least seven hundred dollars or eight hundred dollars to help with funding and it can go towards anything where were y'all when that? <laughs> People say that. I mean, we partner closely with Achieve Atlanta, yeah. who are they've been know, on the program before. Yeah. Yes, and we could not do this work without them there to make sure students get that scholarship. But we have implemented again, taking suit from institutions like GSU. Mm-hmm. We have what we call an emergency enrollment grant, and it is up to seven hundred fifty dollars for students as long as they are in a post sec program. Mm-hmm. So we have students who've been getting that grant every year, four or five years. Do they have to maintain some other type of uh, criteria, GPA or anything like no, that? No, they need to be enrolled and that's where you know because sometimes students are going to falter mm-hmm. and they're going to need we don't want to penalize we're there to support yeah do they have to attend school here in georgia no they don't not in our program no mm-hmm. Lashanti, in, in in two years when you're graduating i don't know maybe i'll give the commencement speech again and i'll look out there and i see you uh yes you're gonna give be re- a shout out give me a shout out <laughs> <laughs> what's your career goal my career goal. I would like to become an exercise physiologist, but I'm still looking into, um, you know, as far as careers. I'm still looking into it. But an exercise physiologist is on my top one. I like that. When you have success stories, and you're already a success story, I don't need to say if. She's a success story. Declared it. Yeah, declared it. Right. Own it. That's right. Yeah. Stories like this are so important that you can use Lashanti's story to get more people involved in the program, get more funding. This is what you want. This is a clear example of what you all do. Absolutely. 
Yeah. And, you know, Lashanti would say, I mean, there are bumps in the road. You know, a lot of our students, it's two steps forward and one step back. But that is where programs and interventions can really be a difference maker. And our students show up. You know, I always we are simply there to support them and frankly, them tapping into their unlimited potential. No doubt. Support through anything. First semester isn't easy in college. It's not easy. But with one goal, they make sure they're there for you mentally, like financially, everything. They're they're supportive. Very supportive. That's what's up. They helped me. They even helped me move in to Clayton State. They physically helped you move in? Yes. I could have used y'all. My dad dropped me <laughs> off. He said, there you go. No, I'm just kidding. He helped me. Yeah. I was helped moved in. Yeah. Very appreciative. Thank y'all. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I mean... You know, we do it because of students like Lashanti, but truly there is little we will not do to help students get to and stay in and through to completion. You send them care packages? Oh, we have done that mm-hmm. in the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, we kept the post office in business. We were just <laughs> sending stuff out nonstop. Taylor Ramsey, executive director of One Go, and Lashanti Holland, a sophomore at Clayton State University. Thank you both for taking the time. Continued success, young lady. Reach out if you're Thank needing anything. Thank you so much. We got you. Thank you so much, Rose. It was a pleasure. We'll send you a WABE care package. I don't know. Thank we'll you. take it. That's awesome. <laughs> All we got are shirts, hats, and mugs, but yes. that's what we do best. We love the swag. All the swag. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm grateful for anything. So. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. This week, Georgia State's Department of Africana Studies is presenting a conference that will examine and discuss the role of black popular culture in the fight for social justice. Is Beyond the Culture 2, Black Popular Culture and Social Justice, and it's going to take, a place, take place at the Auburn Avenue Research Library. And also, since we know it's 50 years of hip-hop, of course, they're going to talk about that. Joining me now is Lakita Monique Bonnet-Bailey, who's an associate professor of Africana Studies at Georgia State and the interim co-director for the Center for the Advancement of Students and Alumni. Let's take a deeper dive into this. Professor, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So, listen, your research intersects a lot with hip-hop culture, popular culture, political behavior, all that African-American politics, black women in politics, to say that this conference in your wheelhouse is an understatement because this is your domain. This is your space. Yes, definitely. This is something that, you know, we wanted to bring to the to the university. Um, popular culture is important. And I think it often gets a bad rap, um, no pun intended. But when we're thinking about popular culture, we often don't think about the ways in which popular culture can influence social justice um, and can advocate for social justice. And so I thought it was really important that we look at the political aspect of black popular culture, because throughout our history, that has been um, a huge supporter of um, social justice initiatives, as well as pushing forth some ideas. And are you using history as also that beginning point and taking attendees as, as they're attending this conference? You're, you're using history and saying, look, we're going to connect the past to what's happened and also to the to the present and the future. You're taking them through all of those phases. Yes, yes. We have two themes for the conference this year. One is on hip hop. 
and the other is on loosely on Afrofuturism. And so the hip hop theme is to um, celebrate hip hop 50th anniversary this year. Um, but we also wanted to talk about this trajectory and this history of black music and the role that black music has played in social justice um, initiatives. And then we are also focusing on movies like Wakanda, Wakanda Forever, and mm -hmm. this whole idea of Afrofuturism and what it means for elevating um, black identity, but also for um, demonstrating that there are different aspects to the black community. You know, when you talk about music and this intersection of social justice, and I, I immediately I, I'm I'm thinking about, you know, Billie Holiday and when she's saying strange fruit, you know, to me, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Obviously, that song really, really telling the story of what was happening, what was taking place in America. Yes. And, and we still have that tradition. Um, I think sometimes we don't acknowledge how much of that um we have within popular culture popular culture um but we can just look at the last couple of years and the protests that have occurred and some of the songs that came out of that um seizing a protest so mm -hmm. little baby is an atlanta artist for instance and his the bigger picture is probably you know one of the most prominent examples here mm -hmm. in in atlanta but there are a number of artists who have been consistently talking about politics and social justice issues within their music i think kendrick lamar comes to yes. mind as well probably for this generation now for old folks like me you know <laughs> we're gonna go back a little bit obviously to to not just the last poets but for in terms of hip-hop you gotta look at grandmaster flash you know obviously public enemy Poor Righteous Teachers, which was really a big favorite of mine. I could, I could go on and on about Poor Righteous Teachers, which I will a little bit later in the year. But yeah. those, but I think you, you mentioned a bad rap, and because I think for some, trying to understand the difference that not, not all rap is the same, the same, you know, yes. and hip hop is not just music. It's, exactly. It's a culture. It's a movement. It's a culture and yeah. a movement. How much will you focus on hip hop? So the for the conference, the whole entire first day is focused on hip hop. And so we are having lectures and panels on hip hop, but we are also showing the other elements of the culture. So we will have Mr. Antara Fierce talking about um, graffiti writing and where it has gone and where it was in hip hop. We're going to have a representative from the Black Man's um, Lab to talk about the ways in which they use hip hop mm -hmm. to encourage Black men in Atlanta. And we're gonna have Mr. Booker Everett, who's a professor at GSU, talking about the art of sampling within hip hop. And then all of the other panels and lecturers will be talking about the use of lyrics, the use of dance, the use of music. So that entire first day on February the 9th is mm -hmm. dedicated to hip hop. And how excited are you about that? I am extremely excited. <laughs> I'm extremely excited. I will say that we have our first lecture on February the 8th, and that is going to feature um, Dalton Higgins, and is co-sponsored by the Canadian consulate here in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. um, but he's going to be talking about Drake and the new hip-hop world, so the ways in which hip-hop has been globalized. And so he is a journalist and an author, and he's going to um, open us up with that. So we are. Re I'm very excited. I'm. I'm very excited. To, I wish I can attend all of the panels, but I know I'll probably be running around somewhere in the air. Now, I gotta, excited I gotta be honest, because I'm not a. I'm not the big. I'm gonna get emails on this. I'm not the biggest Drake fan. I know he's popular, but you tell me uh, Drake was. Does Drake have some social justice messaging I, I missed out on, or <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. No, not so much. I cannot think of any. Yeah. I, he has been on songs where they've talked about social justice issues. So I would say that he has done some stuff with Meek Mills. And Meek Mills 
is an artist out of Philly that is really leading the charge, especially because of his situation. He and was being incarcerated. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. And um, what they have done to, to move that movement forward. And I would say our first day um, to February the 9th, we are having um, authors and professors Andrea Dennis and mm-hmm. Eric Nielsen come to talk about rap lyrics on trial. They wrote a book called Rap Lyrics on Trial. And that is a case, you know, right now that hits home for Atlanta because we're currently seeing the case um, play out in our media today. And so they're going to talk about this history of how rap lyrics have been utilized. So, you know, Drake, not so much. I wouldn't say so much, but what I do make the argument, and I will say this, is that in my book, I said that you cannot necessarily label or uh, label a hip-hop artists Mm -hmm. instead you should look at the lyrics of their songs because drake may have and i don't know his whole discography not right now top of my head but he may have a song that's political that's talking about social justice Mm -hmm. and i know we can think about other artists like Lil wayne Mm is probably the example i use the most who's not a conscious or social justice art artist like brand nubian or uh, poor righteous teachers but Mm -hmm. he has created some political rap songs and so when you think about go back and you think when rock the vote which you know Diddy and, and all those folks were involved in. And then you think now to 2023, is this a demographic that is getting a little, I don't say disconnected from the, the political landscape? And, and, and I mean, social justice is one issue, mm-hmm. but the political landscape in terms of letting their voice be known to folks who want to represent them, whether it's on a local or, or state or federal level, is there still a disconnect with getting that group to the polls and becoming civically engaged? I don't think that there is a disconnect. I, I actually think what we have seen over the last couple of years, especially since uh, President Obama was elected, is the use of hip hop more to drive people to the vote to the polls. And so and then the hip hop artists are also having these meetings with politicians. So it's become more an intricate relationship between hip hop and politicians. An example and a, a great example is here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. You know, I was at a concert this summer and we had Stacey Abrams come out on stage doing a young Jeezy set and we saw Mayor Dickens doing that set and we saw Raphael Warnock. And so they understand what Obama was able to capture before is that using popular culture, especially for the young people, mm-hmm. is a motivation for them to get out. And we have people even like Lil Baby who met with um, our Vice President Kamala Harris and, mm-hmm. and met with Nancy Pelosi to talk about issues and concerns of his generation. And I want to shift for a moment because you mentioned, you know, um, Afrofuturism and, of course, Black speculative fi- fiction, which hits on a lot of themes we're seeing more of that as well. And because, look, I, I love it. I, I love being able to be transported out of this earth, you know, yeah. in, in some type of, you know, speculative fiction. And then there's a, a, a political thing that's current, is currently running in our nation, whether it's racism or any other kind of ism. That also is something that if folks don't know. Pick up. I can give you some authors. I'll email them to you because if I say their names again, people will get mad. But there's some some fantastic authors out there that are really exploring those themes. Yes, they are. And I'm, I'm really definitely interested in, in Black sci-fi. And for our second day, we want to focus on that. We want to focus on ways in which, you know, literature and film has been promoting these ideas. And in fact, one of our, our keynote speaker for um, February the 10th, the second day, is going to be Edwige John francois And mm-hmm. she's going to talk about 
the image and the role of Haiti, especially the image we saw in the latest Wakanda film, Wakanda mm -hmm. Forever. And so she's going to talk about the way that film is used to elevate the image um, and to celebrate the image of Haitians um, as well as in other media. So I think, you know, we are trying to hit on all aspects of Afrofuturism. So not just thinking about film, but also books, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also looking at television. We're going to talk about, we have um, one speaker talking about Stacey Abrams and her role on Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And so what that means for us as a Black community and having these images put forth. And this is free, this is open to the public? People can register, yes, not just free students? And open to the public. It's free and open to the public. Um, the We have a website where you can click on that link and you can register to attend, but you do not have to register in advance. We welcome everyone to come out um, to Auburn Avenue Research Library starting on February the 8th at 6 p.m., continuing for the next two days from 10 until um, 4 p.m. Now, I don't know if I asked you this last time you were on the program, but I need for you to give me your top five. You know what I'm talking about now. You did ask me the last time uh -huh. on the program. You, you so. were, were you scared to give me your top five? I was scared then. Um, I think I've since. I think I thought about it a lot since the airing of that show. In, in no order of importance, in no order in ranking, but just give me your top five. Okay, here it goes. Um, Andre three thousand. Andre Nas. got it. Nas. Nas. Lamar. Okay. Um, I would say Jay Z. I would have to put Jay Z in that running. Okay. And for my final, Rakim. Okay, so actually we're 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 pretty close. Um I'm just going to substitute Kendrick for Chuck D. Okay. And Andre's in my top ten, but he's not my top five. Yeah. So, so we also have to, Yeah, I've recently recognized some women. Yeah, right. Because yeah. Light is in my top ten. Yes. I've switched because LL was always in my top fifteen. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put LL in my top five, and I'll tell you why. Because the energy that he brought was so, it was just like something we had never seen. For what, 16, 17-year-old kid? Yes. And just so, you know, LL is now, he's, he's I'm going to get emails. But, you know, that's okay. And that's it's a great conversation to have. Yeah, and when you're thinking about LL, you know, during the pandemic, he came out to, to talk about um the killing of unarmed blacks through mm -hmm. lyrics and mm -hmm. so he showed his prowess again on a youtube video where he was actually talking about and responding to some of the injustices injustices that were happening so again social justice and hip-hop strongly intertwined all right i have a feeling i'll be talking to you a lot throughout this summer as on closer look we're going to have our own ode to hip-hop so we appreciate it it is the Beyond the Culture 2, Black Popular Culture and Social Justice. We'll have a link on our website. Professor, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having us on, and thank you for promoting the conference. We appreciate it. And that is it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Pat St. Clair, and Daniel Razel. Our supervising producer is Tiffany Griffith. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on anything that you heard on the show, because y'all always do. Send me, send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And, of course, you can always, always catch our rebroadcast at 7 p.m. and online at wabe.org slash closer look. Our engineer for today was Sawyer Vanderwoot. I hope I said that correct. Thank you, Sawyer. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott.
the world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.